Hi again, folks, and welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Property Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima again. Great to have you back with us today. Really glad you could tune in. In this episode, we're going to go slightly off topic again. We are often approached by various companies and individuals who are interested in marketing their services to the Japanese and vice versa, although not as often by various Japanese entities who have an interesting product or service that they'd like to try and market or sell in other countries. Now, if it's a real estate property or related product that they're talking about, we can usually at least give them some pointers and advice on how to best present their pitch or which channels they might want to try and promote it on. But beyond that, we're really not experts on the topic. And even with property-related products, there are specific ways to try and translate, localize, and otherwise tweak your product so that it has a better chance of working overseas. And because of the huge language and cultural gap between Japan and the rest of the world, this becomes an even more complicated issue since the Japanese, as we've covered here time and time again, have very unique ways of doing things. And these ways are very often completely incompatible with how the rest of the world does them. So for this purpose, with us on the phone today from Melbourne, Australia, is Kirsty Wilkinson, founder and principal of Asia Market Makers, which, as you might have already guessed from the name, is a cross-border marketing expert. And she specializes in Asia, but more specifically in the Japanese market. Now, Kirsty regularly speaks out about the uh, subtle and not-so-subtle differences in marketing and selling products and services to various cultures in the Asia-Pacific region. And we thought it would be a good idea to pick her brains a bit about what it takes to practically and successfully do business here in Japan with the Japanese, whether it's trying to sell them a product, strike up a relationship for various professional reasons, or to try and import a Japanese product or service to another country. Now, if you'll recall, we've touched upon all of these uh, subjects here in the past when we've discussed the importance of teaming up with local operators here in Japan, uh, building, maintaining relationships, um, for our purposes, for property purchases, sale management purposes, and so forth. And we've also interviewed Dr. Greg Story from Dale Carnegie Tokyo, as well as Jason Ball, who's the man in charge of the Business in Japan, the BIJ online community. But what makes Kirsty so special is that she's also worked the other way, meaning not only assisting to sell and distribute products here, but also to establish bilateral channels. So working with Japanese suppliers, helping companies and individuals uh, forge ongoing business relationships and so forth. So with all this in mind, it's probably best to let uh, her do the talking. Kirsty, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Hi, Zeus. Thanks for, the, for having me on your podcast. Um, so I guess before we actually get uh, right into it, could you maybe give us a bit of your own story? How did you end up specializing in cross-border business and specifically in Japan? Yeah, sure. Um, just my um, interest in Japan um, goes back um, quite some time. Um, when I won an AFS BHP corporate scholarship to live in Japan for a year, attending a Japanese school. And following my year in Japan, I studied advanced Japanese at Monash University and did, had a, did a business degree specialising in international trade. After living in London for a few years working for a global wine company, I was really um, dissatisfied with the Australian job market. So I decided to set up Asia Market Makers um, to help businesses um, wanting to export to Japan, teach Japanese language and culture, and empower translators and interpreters with the right skill set for their businesses to flourish, uh, as well as helping um, um, Japanese companies who might be interested in exporting to countries like Australia. 
um, I've been asked to help at a, um, with a, Japanese, a Lebanese winery um, that were looking at a Japanese market by a, a former colleague in London. And so I jumped at the opportunity. Um, I attended wine and gourmet in, London, in Tokyo on their behalf about five years ago and was astounded by the number of exhibitors who had no clue about Japan and how to go about entering the Japanese market. Mm-hmm. That was really the catalyst to starting Asia Market Makers. Um, one Australian wine company had spent a huge amount of money on a, a large booth that, that they had no literature in Japanese or in English about their winery or tasting notes and I was just I was just floored by the lack of preparation. They'd also hired a, a marketing agency from Singapore who seemed to have no clue either. Mm. So many times I've spoken to companies about having time and money to invest and that it requires patience to be successful in the Japanese market. As you know, success doesn't happen overnight. Oh, definitely, you can say that again. I mean, we, we find ourselves having to explain to um, investors and property buyers, especially first-timers, um, time and time again, that as strange as it may sound to them, just having the resources or the money or the product that everybody wants doesn't necessarily cut it here. I mean, in other countries, really, all they have to do is show up and say, I want to invest my money with your company, and you're pretty much immediately in business. But it doesn't really work that way here, does it? Oh, absolutely not. Um, it's so important in Japan to build relationships and gain trust. Gain trust. Um, that's part. That's the part that a lot of companies just don't understand. And I'm just re- I re- reiterate it so many times, and they still don't seem to get the message. Um, often it can take two or three years at least to develop strong relationships. Mm. One of the big mistakes companies make is sending unsolicited emails and then wonder why I don't get a reply. <laughs> Unless you meet people in person, they won't take you seriously in Japan. When you mention emails, they're probably sending emails in English too, aren't they? I mean, this is like really the first point to consider. It might be changing slowly, but still anything to do with foreigners, and especially foreigners who don't actually speak Japanese, that's still a bit of an issue here, isn't it? Yes, that's very true. I think problems arise when they aren't well prepared, which happens so often, and they don't have an interpreter to help them. I've seen huge problems when they refuse to adapt to the local culture as well. I just, I don't, I'm astounded how many times I, I actually tell clients, but it just it doesn't seem to get through. Just learning a little bit about the Japanese culture and language can go a long way. I'm now incorporating these these in my packages, in packages to ensure my clients are well prepared for their country visits to Japan. And really, the Japanese make the same, well, not the same, but mistakes along the same lines, don't they, when they try to form relationships with uh, buyers or sellers or partners overseas? Absolutely. And the same can be said in going the other way. Initially, I was only going to focus on exporting, but I decided to do importing as well with the number of inquiries that I received when I was at Wine and Gourmet. I had a, there was a specialized trading house that approached me and I was happy to talk with them to, to some of their customers. The manager I dealt with was Japanese and South American. He had a great understanding of both sides. I met with some of with some of um, his, his potential clients. Um, but, but like can happen in Japan, they were unwilling to adapt to local conditions to be successful. It was a shame as two of the companies in particular had great product offerings. Japan makes some great handcrafted products with a long history. That's the mistake that Japanese companies make. And one of the products I was trying to assist was maple leaf tea, mm. which I think would have been very popular and done very well um, in Australia. 
Australians love Japanese food and they'll, tr they'll give anything a try. However, in Australia, you simply can't have medical claims on your products, which they had on their labels in Japanese. Oh. I tried explaining to them numerous times, but it just fell on deaf ears. Okay, and, and speaking of that refusal to listen, um, something I'm really dying to get your feedback on. Um, us living here in Japan, we often run across some seriously mangled English, you know, as we do in many parts of Asia. And this is not only when a local company is trying to communicate with foreigners, it almost seems as if it's supposedly cool or attractive to try to market in English, even by Japanese to the Japanese themselves. And yet, not many of these companies here seem to mind enough or at all that their copywriters aren't actually native English speakers, not even close to it. So they end up making these ridiculous mistakes in translation. And the worst part is that even when you point it out to them, they still don't seem to care, or at least, again, not enough to hire someone fluent in the language uh, to create the marketing text or even just proofread them. Do you any idea what's behind this? Yes, I've never really understood why they don't hire a native speaker. It's just common sense, really, I would have thought. During one of my recent visits to Japan, I was at a big train station in Kansai, and um, on one of their signs that, that, that translated into English had huge mistake um it was a sign for either the airport or toilet from what i remember it really made me chuckle i think they they're often scared about using english due to making mistakes but that's really the only way you learn i think many japanese people would have much better english than most jap than the japanese ability of many tourists mm. so do you think that um they are changing at all is this change over the time that you've been doing what you do here? Um, in the 20 plus years that I've been coming to Japan, things have certainly changed. Um, there are a lot more signs in English and other languages such as Chinese and Korea, which makes it much easier to get around for tourists. In terms of globalization, I've seen many Japanese companies partnering with other global, global organizations, both in Japan and overseas. And also, it's become much more dis disability f access friendly. Oh, yeah. In this regard, I think it's much more in front compared to Australia, as an example. All right, so there's hope for us yet. Okay, so uh, what else is new these days? What's, um, what's popular now in Japan? Um, what are the Japanese trying to market overseas more, in your experience? Um, where do you see things heading on both fronts in coming years? Yeah, um, one thing I've really noticed... There's a lot more wine available in Japan and um, and different places you can actually consume it as well. I remember when I first came to Japan, it was actually hard to buy wine at restaurants. It was pretty much beer or sake. Now there's much more variety and availability of wines. The quality of Japanese-made wines is also improving, although still a long way to go. Um, there's also... There's still more education required about the different grape varieties. Mm. Also, due to the aging population in Japan, there are good opportunities for medium to premium wines. Also noticed a lot more Western foods and beverages available in both supermarkets and department store food halls. Last time I was in Japan, I recall there being tastings for high-quality English teas in a high-end department store in Ginza. That's nice. Well, well, I honestly hope to see more of that personally because really Japan needs the outside world, doesn't it? I mean, the declining population, the um, relative lack of competitiveness and the spirit of innovation, all of those things that Japan so desperately needs, um, a lot of it needs to be brought over or at least learned from other countries, I really think. Um, what's your take on Japan's place in the world these days compared with, um, say, 20, 30 years ago? I think it, it most certainly does. And whilst Japan has opened up a lot, uh, since I first um, visited Japan, 
still has a long way to go. I think having the Olympics and the Paralympics in Japan next year, as well as the Rugby World Cup this year, has definitely helped. It's it's definitely put Japanese in the spotlight. Um, one thing that um, one thing Japan needs to be more open about is immigration. As an example, the total number of asylum applications received versus those approved is very low. Yeah. If you compare uh, Germany and Canada as an example, approximately 40% of applications are approved, whilst for Japan it's only 0.2%, which, wow. is, which is nothing. And also getting visas to work in Japan is also very difficult. Um, Japan is going to need more skilled labour in the coming years, especially with the um, ageing population. And, that, and I think they need to make it um, a bit easier for those interested in working in Japan. I think you're going to see more um, partnering with overseas companies. Um, as an example, I've started collaborating with a, a big Japanese company um, who want to invest more in the Australian economy, oh. Australian economy um, as, as well as other um, areas as well. well. That's fantastic. And I agree, it would be great um, if we could see a lot more of these collaborations. And folks, if there's anyone out there that would like to get some insights, market research, or just have a chat with an expert about anything to do with uh, cross-border investments, uh, both into and out of Japan, so import, export, whatever you're into, Kirsty is definitely the person to talk to, and we'll link to her company's website in the show notes, of course. All right, Kirsty, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Okay, folks, that's probably it from us for today. We hope you've enjoyed this talk with Kirsty. Do feel free again to hit her up with your questions in the comments section or wherever you might have found this episode. Just a quick reminder again as well about our seminar coming up at the end of July in Akasaka, Tokyo. We'll link to that one as well in the show notes for today. So do share this episode and the podcast with your own networks if you think anyone in them could find some value in it. And again, we would really hugely appreciate it if you could rate us or better yet, leave us a review in the iTunes store or the podcast repository, if that's where you're streaming or downloading from, your word of mouth really helps us reach a wider audience, and that's the only way for us to grow. So we hope to have you with us next time, and until then, from all of us here at NTI and Asian Market Makers, we wish you, as always, happy investing.